Any education apart from Jesus Christ is for us miseducation. And it produces not education nor an educated man, but a new race of barbarians who are today busily destroying their civilization. Humanistic education is the institutionalized love of death. Christian education, because it serves him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, is the love of life. This is the Love of Life podcast, conversations with Jesse and Courtney. Welcome to episode nine of the Love of Life podcast. And you'll notice, well, you might not, <laughs> uh, we have video. And uh, yeah, this is this is the Love of Life podcast, episode nine. We don't have a production crew or company behind us. This is the crew. You're looking <laughs> at it. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for joining us on this episode. And did you want to start off and ask me a question? Oh. Yes, I do have a question because um, I have been reading through Genesis, and my question is this. What was a good way to find a wife if you lived, like, in the time of Genesis? And I know that that's, like, a pretty wide range of time, but right. what was a good tactic to find a wife? Fall asleep and God take a rib out of you. Okay, pass Adam. Okay. Um... Something that more than one man could do and did too. Servants, send out servants to go look for a woman. <laughs> kind of. Okay. Yeah. Uh, What's a good place to find a wife? A well. Yeah, you already knew the answer. Okay. <laughs> Great. Because I already asked you this question. Okay. Uh, yes. Hang out at a well. Um, and you're right about sending the servant because Abraham sent his servant to a well to find a wife. Isaac and the servant prayed um, to Abraham's God to show him and whoever would give him water would be the woman and it was Rebecca so that was good and then Moses found his wife at a well and he watered her flocks her father's flocks um, and then when she went back home and her dad's like hey how did you get everything watered so fast she's like well there was a man there and he helped us <laughs> so her dad's like well did you invite him back for dinner and she's like no so they went and got him and then he ended up giving his oldest daughter to moses as a wife wow yeah there might be more i don't know but okay those two i've encountered found their wives so you're saying well. someday when our sons are looking for wives <laughs> we can just send them to the local well it's probably going to be a different place to hang out. Okay. Yeah, because most people don't hang out at wells. Yeah. But we do have a well. We do have a well at our house. So we just bring the young <laughs> females here when they're of age with our son, you know, 18, 20 years old, something like that. Right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe 20, 20, okay, 22? No, I think, something like I that. think you had the age right. Just okay. I don't know if it'll work to bring them to our well. It might. We have a pretty cool well. Okay, you know, what's interesting is John chapter 4. Jesus meets a woman at a well, True. right? Mm -hmm. And even though, obviously, Jesus isn't looking for a wife, um, she needs the bridegroom, that is Christ, 
Whoa, something just hit our window. That was cool. It was big. That was really big. Was that heresy that I just said? <laughs> what in the world? Okay, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so she needs the bridegroom, right? Mm -hmm. In John chapter 4. Mm -hmm. she And then throughout the course of that conversation, it's revealed to her who she's talking to. Yeah, that Jesus so, is the Christ. Yeah. I don't know if that's yeah, exact kind of typology, reverse, but, but... Yeah, that was neat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so do you have any other questions? Oh, I don't have a question, but... Post to share this, or anything? This is, well, I guess this could be a question, but this is something I noticed also, um, that more than one man, four men actually that I know of as of today, when God calls them, calls their name, they respond with, here I am, mm. or here am I, depending on translation um do you know who those four men were well i do remember because we have had some of this conversation before um abraham was one mm -hmm. moses was another mm -hmm. uh samuel yes which is kind of cheating because i haven't read that yet okay. but you've read it at some time well i know but i mean in this okay. like recent stuff but it's because church our church is going through first samuel so samuel yes and the last one is Jacob. Jacob. Okay, right. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, just, I find that interesting. It's a response that pleases God when these men say, here I am. And I don't know if I'm reading into this, but it just seems like it's more than, oh, hey, I'm here. You didn't know where I was. Like, obviously, because God knows where these people are. Um, it seems like in their response, here I am. It's more of an availing of themselves. It's not just, oh, you found me, I'm, you know, I'm here, but I'm here, use me as you will. Um, so I think it's maybe a good response to, to imitate if God's calling, like, here I am, use me however you will, show me whatever you want, um, I'm available to you. Do you think that's accurate? That that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. I think you also made an additional observation though about Moses that was pretty interesting. Oh, well <laughs> then it was just funny because so Moses says here I am and God like is pleased with that and so God's like, "Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you to my people. They are um slaves and I'm going to send you to deliver them." And then Moses comes up with like all these objections. So he gets it right at first. Here I am. And then he's like, well, who am I? And God's like, no, I am the Lord and I am sending you. Like, you shouldn't be worried about who am I. And then Moses is like, okay, but what if they ask your name? Like, who is it that is sending me? And God says, tell them I am that I am. And then Moses is like, okay, but I stutter. I'm slow of speech. I don't speak well. And then God gets mad at him. God's like angry that he has an objection. And God even says something about how he is the one that makes people speak the way that they do. He's the one that closes the eyes of the blind. He has control over um, all of our functions, um, our eyes, our ears, how they work, our mouths, our speech. And even though God's mad at him, though, then he says, okay, fine, your brother Aaron, like he speaks well. He can be your mouthpiece and you will be like God to the people and he will be like the prophet to the people. Um, so like God is mad at him, but then he does accommodate that. But I just thought it was funny that it was like almost making me laugh because at first, here I am, good response. And then he's like, but, but what about this? What about that? What about this? Um, so he didn't like totally get it. No. <laughs> totally get 
just God is sending you. So don't worry about those things. But that's so like us. So right. that's maybe like the redeeming part of it. Because we are quick to say, oh, but what about this? Or I'm, I'm afraid of this. Or I see this weakness Or I in have me. this impediment or this problem. Mm-hmm. Or I can't do it because of this or that reason. Yeah. A lot of us are like Moses, I think, in most particular cases. Yeah. Especially if there's a work that we go, I can't get that done. Or I can't do this. And oftentimes, you know, God can, God can use us and God can bring along people beside us to help us in our weakness. Like he gave Moses, I mean, Moses had Aaron and Miriam, his siblings Mm -hmm. as, as helps in his, in his ministry and what God gave him to do. Um, Even though Moses readily knew he was slow of speech, he was hesitant to go back and talk to Pharaoh and to do all that he did. Um, And yet God uses our weaknesses um, to show his strength. Yeah. Well, and God might very well have still had Aaron help him. And obviously he has Miriam too. Right. I wonder if the reason that that kindled God's anger is because Moses's eyes were all on, were on him, Mm. his lack, not on God, the God of the universe who has all sufficiency and said, this is what I'm commanding you to do. Like he, it was, you know, maybe that, that pride thing where he's like, but I'm not able, but God's like, it's not about if you're able, I'm the one that's able and I'm sending you. So even though he was slow of speech, like God knew that and God chose him. So Moses wasn't trusting God in that. No. Maybe that was the reason that it made him angry. Yeah. But also cool that God still used him. Yes. (laughs) You know? Uh, So. Yeah. Well, as we look in the Old Testament, it's... The fact that God chose to use anyone is an act of his mercy mm-hmm. because all of these people are failures, far from God, wretches like us. Um, none of them deserve, you know, we often idolize or we can at least um, look at some people in the Old Testament and go, well, David's a man after God's own heart or, you know, Moses or whatever. But all, all of these men were prone to being men. And prone to making mistakes, yet God so God used them. The only human we should ever look up to in that kind of righteous way is Christ himself. He's the only one who is perfect in all his ways. And um, even just reading more and more, like we've been reading of the Old Testament, I think has been very eye-opening to see man's frailty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I feel like a difference between, like, when you're reading the New Testament... You know, it's like a lot of this is what's right. It's clearly spelled out and this is what's wrong. And it's clearly spelled out, whether it's Jesus teaching with authority on the scriptures explaining or whether it's Paul in his letters that are saying, you know, where he's saying this is condemnable behavior and it's among you. Quit it. Stop it. Turn from that sin. Here's what life looks like. Here's what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's just very clear about right and wrong. Um, In the Old Testament, it's like you're reading and it's like, wait. What, what's the commentary? What is right? What is wrong? What's just like the narrative and it's just telling us what's happening. It's just like the actions and what are the things that we are getting the definite God hates this. God loves this pleases God. Like sorting through some of that is harder because there's so much narrative. I feel like I have questions like, well, with every chapter I read, I have more questions. Sure. Um, 
But I think that some of the things as we talk about him, it's like, oh, this could perhaps be, or we know this pleases God and this is maybe why this happens. Um, and then some is still a mystery. But. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no doubt. Do you have any other questions or quotes that you wanted to read or go through? Any um, of the books that we have? What books are you reading lately? So one book I've been reading, which so far is awesome, it's The Rare Jewel. I don't know if you can see that. Um, of Christian Contentment. It's by Jeremiah Burroughs. I finished the prayer book um, by Thomas Goodwin, mm -hmm. I think. And I've decided I always want to read a Puritan. Like, I want that to be in my lineup. Yeah. So this is my new Puritan book. Um, it's just really, really good. He talks about how contentment is a mystery, but it's a mystery that can be learned. And as Paul talks about... Um, so he kind of talks about what it's not and then some of what it, what it is, what it looks like. And then I think he's going to go into like how you can learn the mystery of it. Um, but just a quick word about Puritans too. I find it, I had a conversation recently with, with someone that, um, talked about the Puritans and, and then he, he basically stated that there's certain writers and certain people who go, I don't. You know, these people didn't care for the Puritans because they were rigid and stuff. And I, I've heard that remark. I mean, that's one of the things that the Puritans get a uh, a bad rap about. And yet at the same time, I go, do these people read the New Testament? I mean, do they not see that the God of the universe is holy in all of his doings and all of his ways? Does it not lead to a holy life, which some people would identify as rigid? I don't know. So in reading the Puritans, I don't find, is it the word rigid, uh, rigidity? Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't find that. I, I personally find a devout fervor and zeal for the Lord. And I know, I know you do too, that I find so remarkable and so missing in our culture day and age overtly that I, I, I think if anything, it would be uh, rushing wind to quote Keith Green um, through the church if people would read more Puritans, I mean, it is, I'm not saying it's absolutely necessary for everyone to read a Puritan, but, um, it's, it should be required reading. I think, I mean, it's really <laughs> it's not required, but it's required. It's not required, but in my school, <laughs> it would be required. So, yeah. well, I just, what I've encountered so far in the Puritans I've read is they have a really high view of God. Um, and not in like a lofty far off, but in like a proper and right way. They understand the creature um, creator divide and they're thorough and they're deep. And the truth that they hand you is wonderful. I also love, and you read me some of Jonathan Edwards sermons and he teaches like this too, but like they'll say, okay, here's three things about this topic. Um, point one, point one A. Point one B, point one C, point two, point two A. Like it's just it's replete with I'm on the same thought, but there's this distinct thing and this distinct thing and this distinct thing, and all of them are important. And I don't know, just the way that they're organized in that and so thorough. I just I find it delightful. Yes. Yeah. And helpful. It's just really, really I helpful. was reading Edwards tonight, and if we get around to it, I'll I'll read one or two of the quotes from him because yeah, it's just, it's so deep, it's so profound, it? it's so biblical. I do, but let's go ahead and read your quote or, uh, quote or two, whatever you have here. Yeah, so I'll give a couple of the points of this, and I'll let you read 
one of them, but um, he talks about how contentment is a sweet inward heart thing. It is a work of the spirit indoors. Um, And then he kind of explains some of what that is. And he also talks about how it's not just a personality thing. It goes beyond an easygoing temperament, how you can have like a peaceable on the surface temperament, but that does not mean that you've learned contentment inwardly. Um, And likewise, you can be a person who is more um, externally showy with your feelings and your emotions. And, you know, that obviously gives you away for a lack of contentment, but um, how either one, when they learn the mystery of contentment, regardless of personality, this is a deeper thing. Um, So he talks about how it is the quiet of the heart. And... Um, there are certain things it's not opposed to. It's not opposed to a due sense of affliction when you're suffering. You don't have to be like, oh, it's not suffering at all. It's great. Like you can acknowledge that it's suffering. It's not opposed to that. It's not opposed to making in an orderly manner our moan and complaint to God and to our friends. Um, it being contentment, right? Contentment it, is it not opposed. Being, right. I'm not Content- sure if you highlighted right, the words. Yeah, yeah. Just highlight contentment that word. is not opposed to going to the Lord with our condition and maybe going to a friend or two so that they can speak a word in season to the weary soul. Um, Contentment is not opposed to all lawful seeking for help in different circumstances, nor to endeavoring simply to be delivered out of present afflictions by the use of lawful means. So it's not like we just have to stay with whatever troubles us and that's just fine. Like we can go to the Lord, we can do what um, we can, but it is also a submission and resignation of spirit to be delivered when God wills, as God wills, and how God's will, how God wills, so that our wills are melted into the will of God. Um, but then here are the things that it is opposed to, and point six is what I'm going to have you read. It is contentment is opposed to murmuring and repining at the hand of God, um, like the Israelites did. It is opposed to vexing and fretting. It is opposed to a tumultuousness of spirit. It's opposed to an unsettled and unstable spirit, whereby the heart is distracted from the present duty that God requires in our several relationships towards God, ourselves, and others. And he explains for each of these points, like, what he means. Um, And then contentment is opposed to distracting, heart-consuming cares. And then this is the one you wanted. It is opposed to sinking discouragements. It's the one that I wanted. It's the one you wanted. To, I read this one to you, and you were like, "That's really good." So, yes, it's the one you. Am wanted. I prone to sinking discouragements? Do you want me to answer that honestly? <laughs> I'm just going to read it. <laughs> okay, so it is opposed to sinking discouragements when things do not fall out according to expectation, when the tide of second causes runs so low that we see little in outward means to support our hopes and hearts. Then the heart begins to reason, as did he in Second Kings 7.2, If the Lord should open the windows of heaven, how should this be? We never consider that God can open the eyes of the blind with clay and spittle. He can work above, beyond, and even contrary to means. He often makes the fairest flowers of man's endeavors to wither and brings improbable things to pass, in order that the glory of the undertaking may be given to himself. Indeed, if his people stand in need of miracles to bring about their deliverance, miracles fall as easily from God's hands as to give his people daily bread. 
God's blessing many times is a secret from his servants, so that they do not know from which way it is coming. As ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water. 2 Kings 3.17 God would have us to depend on him, though we do not see how the thing may be brought about. Otherwise, we do not show a quiet spirit. Though an affliction is on you, do not let your heart sink under it. So far as your heart sinks, and you are discouraged under affliction, so much you need to learn this lesson of contentment. Yeah. (laughs) That's really, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. My absolute favorite line is, He often makes the fairest flowers of man's endeavors to wither and brings improbable things to pass in order that the glory of the undertaking undertaking may be given to himself. And I think as many times as we personally have have seen this, it's like there are moments and times even in our life, and I'm sure in the lives of anyone who's watching or listening, who, you know, as, as a believer, you can see these, some things that are just improbable things come to pass, even like Old Testament Israel, and yet, you know, this is why we have to exhort one another daily, you know, because our hearts are prone to forgetting, our hearts are prone to sin. And because of that, we have to remember that he can make these improbable things come to pass again and again and again through his own power and strength. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's just amazing how often we need these reminders of his of his promises. Well, yeah, and it's like we we trust a God who has revealed so much to us about who he is. So even when our natural eyes cannot see how a thing could be fixed or redeemed or restored or um, even how God's plan in the world could could possibly happen because we can't see it with our eyes, we don't have to see it with our eyes to know it's true. We trust the God who made our eyes. Um, we trust in his ability to bring about every single thing that he has promised, every single thing that he says in his word that he is going to do. He is able to do and he will do. So we can rest, not because we can see that it's all going to work out. We can rest and be content because we know the God who is able to make it all work out, even when it looks like it's all falling apart or couldn't possibly come to pass. Um, That is a type of faith that pleases God. In the Old Testament, over and over, we see that when people believe his word, He credited it to them as righteousness. It's a believing in who he is and what he says that pleases him. Faith pleases God. Yep. So it's an encouragement. Exactly. Exactly. Was there anything else from from here you were going to read? Oh, that's good. But no, that was what I was really wanting to To highlight. To highlight, yes. Okay, great. Was there any other uh, book or thing you wanted to highlight from your stack stack of books? I do have a stack of books. Who doesn't? (laughs) Okay, I could go in like so many different directions. Okay, well, um, I could read the Edwards quote. Yes. I don't know what, let me see what kind of time we're looking at here. It's not been long. So, 
I'm reading Edwards, Jonathan Edwards. Um, this is so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anything you've read me is so good. Edwards is just, um, yeah, he might be one of, if not my very favorite. But anyway, um, I think I, well, I read this to you a little while ago, and I said, um, does any pastor preach like this overall? I mean, we have, we, we have, we are blessed with great pastors right now. And I grew up in a church blessed with a great pastor who would preach this, but do we have many American pastors They're few preaching, preaching this kind of word here? So this sermon's called great guilt, no obstacle to the pardon of the returning sinner. Um, and he says, um, if we should truly come to God for mercy, the greatness of our sin will be no impediment to pardon. If it were an impediment, David would never have used it as a plea for pardon, as we, as we find he does in the text. The following things are needful in order that we truly come to God for mercy. One, and this is just a little section that I'll read, that we should see our misery and be sensible of our need of mercy. They who are not sensible of their misery cannot truly look to God for mercy, for it is the very notion of divine mercy, that is, the goodness and grace of God to the miserable. Without misery in the object, there can be no exercise of mercy. To suppose mercy without supposing misery, or pity without calamity, is a contradiction. Therefore men cannot look upon themselves as proper objects of mercy, unless they first know themselves to be miserable. And so, unless this be the case, it is impossible that they should come to God for mercy. They must be sensible that they are the children of wrath, that the law is against them, and that they are exposed to the curse of it, that the wrath of God abideth, not, abideth on them, and that he is angry with them every day, while they are under the guilt of sin." They must be sensible that it is a very dreadful thing to be the object of the wrath of God, that it is a very awful thing to have him for their enemy, and that they cannot bear his wrath. They must be sensible that the guilt of sin makes them miserable creatures, whatever temporal enjoyments they have, that they can be no other than miserable, undone creatures, so long as God is angry with them, that they are without strength and must perish and that eternally, unless God help them, they must see that their case is utterly desperate for anything that anyone else can do for them, that they, that they hang over the pit of eternal misery, and that they must necessarily drop into it if God have not mercy on them. Do you hear that at any altar call? <laughs> Do you hear that at, at, at many uh, so-called revival meetings or our, our pastors when they're telling? I, I just I see I saw a billboard the other day and it's from a famous evangelist and the, the thing just says, God loves you. That's it. Now, what is wrong with that? Does God love us? Is that true? Well, yes, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Yes, it's true. But there's so much more. To that. that is a convoluted statement just to tell the sinner who is an enemy of God in his sin before he repents and comes to Jesus that, quote unquote, God just loves you, so come to him. And that's it. If that's all the evangelist, the teacher, the pastor, or the person is telling someone, and that's all, 
How is the person who does not know and have a relationship with the God of the universe, who it says in the Psalms is angry at the wicked every day, how can that person know the real state of the sin in which they are in, which we're all in, we're all born into sin? For us to actually know this, we, it has to be communicated that the separation is not just, oh, well, you did a few things wrong in your life. Well, everyone does things that are wrong. It's, it's, it's so much greater than that. The wrath of God is deserve, it's, we deserve that wrath. We don't deserve that mercy. It makes, and honestly, it makes forgiveness of our sins all the more glorious to know we are miserable creatures, each and every one of us. But we can be forgiven and we can have a right relationship with God and we can be even called, of all things, a friend of God when he forgives us through the blood of his son, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So to actually have a, an, a deeper understanding of the gospel and not a truncated version, it is essential. Because I think one of the things that has bled over into the church, at least the American church, having grown up in America, is this nominal, cheap grace form of salvation. Just, you know, come to Jesus, let him just take care of all your needs and all your little things and all the, all the stuff you need. He can fulfill all, he can fill all your desires. It's me, me, me. It's me-centric. We no, want a little like, God that we can put in our pocket and take around with us and who will just bless our lives. He's so much more than that, and we have so much more reason to come to him to beg for mercy. Like Edward says, as a miserable creature, because essentially without him, that is what each and every one of us are. But it makes God's love that much more potent and that much more great. You know, it's not like, it's not just, oh, doom and gloom and that's it. Like, no, that's, no, the good news of the gospel is far greater than what most people have even experienced. And I don't even think it's necessarily we should use the word experience uh, like some people use it because God is not just some experience in our lives. God is the, is the ultimate reality of all of life for it was made for him. It was, we are made for him and we're made by him, by him so that everything we do in life should be for Christ. He gave everything to us. We deserve absolutely nothing but hell for eternity. We deserve nothing but hell. But that's what makes the that's what that is what makes the the gospel so glorious and so good. Yeah. If you don't know what you're being saved from or saved out of, you don't even realize that you need a savior. Right. So it it belittles what Christ did and our desperate need for his sacrifice for his precious innocent blood to be spilled in our place if we don't know we're sinners and the depth of it and what we truly deserve like you said it's because of our our state apart from christ that we desperately need him so to just say god loves you and miss the whole part of but you deserve hell you deserve wrath you have rebelled against him you've inherited rebellion um and you choose to rebel daily, then it's, it's only part of it. It's only half of it. And half of it by itself is not it's, true. It's, it's, it's really, I think, not really enough to save, ultimately. I mean, I think Edwards, in his works, has made comments, if the only thing a sinner knows, if the only thing the sinner knows is, well, God loves you, does that person have real knowledge of who the God of the universe is? 
and the state of sin that he is in and the fact and the reason of why Christ came and died for the sinner, for sinners, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's, to me, it's scary. It's scary because we see in the church, this, this, this cheap grace and no cost of discipleship form of Christianity that, um, we need to be rid of once and for all within the church. How, how do we, how do we get rid of that? Well, um, <laughs> first off we pray. Um, we, we, we pray for the current pastors that are in positions of leadership right now and the ones that truly do know him, that they would be emboldened through the power of God's spirit to preach an efficacious message of the gospel week in and week out. And, and, and not, and I don't, I don't really mean just give an altar call by, you know, but to really preach the whole canon of scripture, to preach the whole word, um, and to not truncate aspects of the truth to not to to ignore for instance cultural sins of the day that so many pastors continually gloss over um it is a, it is an egregious error for pastors to do that and i so i think first and foremost people like us who you know i'm not a pastor but it, i i'm i'm the head of my home we pray for pastors we pray for our our current pastors now who i believe do a great job of preaching the word um, but we pray for other local pastors and pastors all throughout our uh, throughout the country and throughout the world um, that they would preach and understand they would have a deeper understanding of the message of the cross truly um, and and then so as we pray for them we pray for others who God will raise up to become pastors and leaders and teachers um, that that would also be because I mean you know these are the shepherds these are the shepherds of the sheep. Um, that have been, a, a lot of them have been, I, I wouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them have been commissioned to be the shepherds of their flock and the leaders of the, and the leaders of, of their congregation. And, and they need to preach a whole message. And then, and then also, you know, the men of the church need to be leading their families at home with their wives, with their children. If, you know, they need to be teaching them in the home. You know. And and we need to be reading the word. We need to be people of the word. In yep. the Bible, sin is clearly spelled out in all over it. I mean, it's it's specific. It's um not ambiguous. Yeah. So we should reflect that. Absolutely. In our teaching and even in our our, our talk, you know, in what we teach our children and what we discuss. Yeah. Did you want to share anything else? Did you want me to share um, anything else? Did you want to wrap up? So I guess just a couple of things. Okay. Because now I'm into Exodus, which okay. is cool. I said cool. I'm trying not to say cool anymore, but it's just a really universally useful word. We do use it a lot. It's probably one of the things we noticed... Not that, well, you haven't even listened to any of the past podcasts. And the only reason why I do is because I edit them. But as I went through them the first couple episodes, I said, you know, we said the word cool a lot. <laughs> we probably should limit our usage of that word and uh, find some cinnamon, cinnamons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those two. That's how George W. Bush says Syn- synonym. <laughs> if I could get it out. There you go. There you go. 
All right. Okay. Exodus. So one thing is in Exodus 18, um, Moses is telling his father-in-law that he is judging between all the people um, to make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And then his father-in-law gives him a good idea about how to set up, um, pick righteous men and then set up one over a thousand and then over the thousands, people over the fifties. I don't know. He like breaks it down so that um, you have one person to a smaller group of people. And then if it's too hard for them, then they go to the next person up um, and then to Moses. And Moses judges like the hardest cases so that he won't be worn out. But when this happens in Exodus 18, this is before Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments. So already Moses is wanting to make known the statutes of God and his laws before what we traditionally consider the law has even been given. Um, and then in verse 21, it says, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. That's the breakdown. Um, so again, oh, and then it says, sorry, in verse 20, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. And like thou shall not covet is one of the Ten Commandments. But even before that law is given, one of the prerequisites for these men is that they hate covetousness. So like already in what we have recorded, and then probably there are things that aren't recorded that God told Moses, but there's already a lot we, we know, even about what God's revealed to himself, that we should know what he commands, what he likes, what he dislikes. That to me was like, wait, what? The law hasn't been given, but he's teaching the people of the law. What's he talking about? But already from just the, from creation, there's a lot that we know about what's right and what's wrong and what should be done and what's out of order. Um, so that was neat. Do you have anything to say about that? No. No? Okay. Um, okay. So then this is another cool thing. So then. Cool. Ah, this is another amazing <laughs> thing. There you go. Mm-hmm. The Lord gives Moses his commands at the top of Mount Sinai. So Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. God comes down to the top of the mountain to give his law. So it had us read Exodus this day where we're getting the law. And then it had us flip to Matthew and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And like, this is just amazing. I said amazing. Don't overuse it though. <laughs> Um, it's the Beatitudes, it's Jesus talking and expounding on the law and giving, um, well, he's teaching on the law, but this is Matthew 5, 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then he begins to teach them. And then several times he says, um, you have heard it said... Like in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Um, so he's teaching on the commands on the top of a mountain like that. Get it? So Moses is on a mountain. Moses, Jesus is on a mountain. Moses is on the top of a mountain. When God comes down to the top of the mountain to teach his laws and his statutes. And then Jesus 
is on the top of a mountain to expound to the people his laws and his statutes. Like you're seeing by even the top of the mountain, like that significance, it would make them go, oh, Jesus is teaching on these very things that God taught Moses on the top of a mountain, on the top of a mountain. So the synopsis for you tonight is men can find women at wells. That's right. And God teaches on the top of a mountain. And God always teaches on the top of a mountain. Okay. okay. Wait, one other scripture okay. is Matthew 5, 17. Do not, this is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So. Clearly, even in Jesus' teaching, he's not saying, oh, murder doesn't matter anymore. You can murder. He's saying, not only should you not murder, not only is that sin, but even being angry without cause towards your brother is worthy of judgment. Um, so, the law matters. The law matters, yes. That's and we good. have a Redeemer who died in our place because we can't perfectly fulfill the law, um, but the law is our, our way of sanctification. So we should know it, we should learn it, and do our best to ask the Spirit to help us obey it. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you wanted to say about that? Um, I don't think about that. I have other things from Exodus, but that's the only one I think about, um, the law. Okay. Okay, all right. Do you have anything else? So, yes, okay. I do have one more thing. So, this is a, uh, a book that I'm reading. I'm almost done with it. Um, it's called Post-Genderism War on the Binary. And um, I actually know the author, um, which is he's a pretty great guy. Um, so, one of the things that the book is about, as you can imagine, is post-genderism. And the whole binary, non-binary debacle that we have going on right now, which is just pure nonsense. God made male and female, and um, he spells that out pretty clear, and it's also pretty obvious and evident, but some people want to convolute things. So, but one of the interesting aspects he, uh, the author brings about is sort of the um, genesis, if you will, of where did a lot of this come from? And um, a lot of this came from feminism, which is very odd, uh, considering, you know, the whole feminist movement, to me, it doesn't, Anyway, I won't go into all that. But anyway, it's just odd to me that it comes, a lot of this it comes from feminist thought. Um, but one of the things he points out is a gal who I wasn't familiar with. Her name was Alice Bailey. And she was a uh, feminist about 70 years ago who believed in the whole New World Order and was a part of the New Age movement. She had a 10-point plan to sort of orchestrate and try to get to come about with the move and the propaganda of the feminist movement and how they could bring about new world order. Okay. So this is about 70 years old and I, and I'm just, I'm riveted on how close to home this is now and that we can see throughout time and up to the present date, these particular 10 points to get to where the, uh, the, this group wants to go to and where it has taken us into, and, unfortunate enough, the Christian leaders of the day, one in which I'll mention, 
um, gives credence to some of this. So um, the first point is to take God in prayer out of the education system. We saw that a long time ago. Two, reduce parental authority over the children. Three, destroy the Judeo-Christian family structure. Four, if sex is free, then make abortion legal and make it easy. Five, make divorce easy and legal. Free people from the concept of marriage for life. Six, make homosexuality an alternative lifestyle. Seven, debase art, make it run mad. Eight, use media to promote and change mindsets. Nine, create an interfaith movement. Ten, get government to make these laws and get the church to endorse these changes. Now, each one of these points could, you know, we could talk about for a long time and say, we saw this here and this, these are the repercussions of this or that. Homosexuality obviously became legal throughout the country in 2015. No fault divorce. No fault divorce. We yes, we've seen uh, use media to promote and change mindsets. I mean, that's like <laughs> <laughs> that's every that's social media. Pro, I mean, the propaganda is everywhere. But the, I think truly the the newer things that are to me at least maybe it's not newer, but the most disconcerting things that I actually read on here is create an interfaith movement, get government to make these laws, and get the church to endorse these changes. So what did we see recently, just a few weeks ago, with uh, the Harvard atheist chaplain? We saw Christians, Christians, namely Tim Keller, we saw him give a, an endorsement for the atheist chaplain at Harvard University, which was originally, originally a long, long time ago, a Christian school. How is this possible? How how is how how can we possibly condone something that is is clearly biblically wrong? It's it's not right for a Christian in a spiritual in 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 a setting of authority to give authority to an atheist over a Christian, sit at the same table, so to speak, break bread with this religion and that religion and this religion over here, and come up with some sort of what creed for how they're going to organize the school with the various faiths that they have. Jesus owns that table that they're sitting at. Jesus is Lord of that table. And I, and it's, it's, it's sad to me. It deeply saddens me that we have Christians, leaders like Tim Keller, who will say, well, the harvest, the, the, the Harvard atheist um, chaplain, he's a nice guy. But, how, how can we possibly endorse anyone for a, for, for, to be a leader in the faith of, or I mean, it's ironic because an atheist is they're, a spiritual well, leader. They have a faith. They have leader. faith in themselves. They have faith in man. Yeah, they do. Um, they would how, hate that though. They would say not, but how can, how, how can this be? How can this be? And how, how is this? We can look at someone, Alice Bailey, a feminist 70 years ago, who was saying, here's how we can move about a new world order. And she has men now, Christian leaders, if I may be so bold as to say, men like Tim Keller, who I've garnered a lot of things from, and I think he has done and said a lot of really wonderful things and written really powerful um, books in the past. 
but such an, to, to me, this, this is egregious. This is something that must be pointed out that it doesn't matter what faith person of who, who, who your guy is or who the person who you enjoy reading or whatever, these things must be looked at by Christians, um, lay Christians. Well, you know, that's us to say, no, this is, this is not right. Um, it's not a point of rejoicing that you voted in to a place of a position of spiritual authority to guide students who are wanting spiritual help, like that you've put an atheist in charge. Like that should grieve a Christian. That shouldn't make him go, oh, yay, good for you. Interfaith is a form of syncretism, which in the Old Testament was denounced and condemned by God. God said, come out from them, be separate. He, he doesn't allow us to pair, uh, to, uh, to, to pair with Baal and Ashtoreth. He, do, he doesn't allow us to do those things for a reason because he alone is the God of the universe. And, and, and the reason why some of these Christians can reach such a high level of places of government, there's other names, you know, there's other people we could, we could talk about and we will. But it, you know, the, the, the reason that these people can is because a lot of them, they cozy up to the powers that be. They don't say anything that is truly offensive, and I mean biblically offensive in a right kind of way. I don't sure. we shouldn't be offensive on purpose to be offensive. I don't think any. But Christian, God's word is offensive. But God's word it offends is our sin. Right. That's that 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 is the point. That is the point. And and it's it's quite clear. I think at this point, you can see a lot of um, teachers and pastors, uh, leaders in the in in the faith who clearly are not saying anything offensive, and they have worked their ways. They have worked their way up uh, the line of leadership, and they have worked their way into um, into roles that they otherwise would not have if they if they came out and they said, "No, Jesus Christ owns this table, and if you will not allow us to take the table over, because again, Harvard was a Christian university. I don't it was set up to train pastors. It was set up to train pastors, which is really crazy. We must take over. We we are called to have dominion." And if we cannot take over that school, we start our own and we, and we take over those, you know, and, and, and then the world will notice, oh, wow, look at, look what, look what these Christians are doing. No one's going to notice when, when, when Christians uh, cozy on up, it, 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 it's, it brings Christ's name through, through the mire to, to basically use syncretism as a way of saying, here's Jesus Christ, here's Beelzebub, here's another God. Here's and here's no God. Here's here's there's a chaplain who's an atheist, and you know we we can all, all streamline these, together. All these beliefs are equal. They're all the same, but they're not all the same. And there's only one true God. There's only one. So when you're when you're elevating that atheist and saying, yeah, he yeah he can be here too. He's a spiritual authority. That's good. His truth, our truth, whatever truth. It's like you're. You're muddying the waters because there's only one true God. And you're essentially saying, no, they're all, all these religions are valid. They're all and equal. I think the scary, the other scary aspect of this is even, te- even you know, Tim and, and other teachers, they would, they would probably state, oh, no, no, Jesus is the only way. You know, I mean, they, I'm, I'm sure they would. If they sure. were sitting across from us, they would say, oh, no, no, Jesus is the only way. But... Are you living that way? Are, are you writing like Jesus is the only way? Are you making your decisions like he is the Lord of the universe now? Because he is. And I think by 
giving assent and condoning this type of um, of leadership position being filled, and then saying this is this is okay, and we're we're good with this. I, I firmly believe that that is it is that it is not right, and it is biblically wrong for um, Tim Keller or anyone else to um, to give to give credence to this. Yeah, this is something we can talk about at a later time, but. Being nice isn't necessarily the same thing as being godly. Right. So if it's a nice thing to congratulate an atheist on, you know, obtaining a place of spiritual authority in a school, like, well, <laughs> doesn't mean that it's godly or it's right. If you met a nice abortion doctor and he just got promoted at the abortion mill, do you write an article or say, hey, good job. I'm really happy you got, uh, you know. No, of course not. You got promoted. You're such a nice no, guy, such no. a nice doctor. Christians, we should not do that. That is not how we should behave. Thank you for listening to the Love of Life podcast, Conversations with Jesse and Courtney. It is our duty through our schools to create a new one, a God-centered one. We are told in Proverbs 8, verses 35 and 36... For whoso findeth me findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death.